Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. What? What? These assholes are saying I have to go to summer school and take some stupid art class. Why? God, I didn't think that just because you get an F you have to take the whole class over again. Loser. As part of our throwback series, today we'll be discussing Ghost World, starring Thora Birch, Scarlett Johansson, Steve Buscemi, Brad Renfro, and Ileana Douglas, directed by Terry Zweigoff. How can you stand all these assholes? Some people are okay, but mostly I just feel like poisoning everybody. Well, at least the wheelchair guy is entertaining. He doesn't even need that wheelchair, he's just totally lazy. <laughs> that rules! No, it really doesn't. You'll see, you get totally sick of all the creeps and losers and weirdos. But those are our people. Yeah, well... Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster that is so bad, he goes past good and back to bad again. It's Galley in Glasgow. <laughs> it's a good reference. and <laughs> It's Devlin in London. I don't know who we're supposed to do a reference. Sorry, uh, it's Patrick in London as well. Hello, boys. Hello, Patrick. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, yeah, been a while. Who have you been moonlighting with? Been cheating on you with Matt. Well, there you go. Hello, Matt. A little shout out to him. Um, I've been listening. And Devlin, I believe it's your choice that we're talking about tonight. It is. And go on, introduce us. You tell us what it is, what we do. Today we are watching, or have watched, uh, Ghost World, which is a film that I hold uh, very dear. I Spoiler. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's why I picked it. It might be shit in retrospect. We'll find out. But... um, no, I, I, um, I guess I came to this film uh, at a really, really fortuitous time because it came out in 2001, but um, I didn't see it until it came out on home video, which would have been in um, 2002, I guess. So I was exactly 18 when it came out. And it was a, a film that I guess I identified with quite a lot at that point. Um, there's, there was a lot of similarities between where I was at that point and where the characters are in the, in the film. Were you a bit of a comic book dude at the time then? Uh, not really. I would actually credit this film with um, with probably introducing me to underground comics. Right. I think having seen the film and loved the film, I didn't read the comic until afterwards. Okay, and uh, from there, I, I kind of discovered uh, Daniel Clow's work. I got into his Eight Ball series. There's a, um, a couple of little collected editions. Uh, Ghost World was originally published in Eight Ball, which is his his uh, his comic. Okay. Um, uh, a few of his other graphic novels, David Boring especially, which is fantastic. It was where I discovered that comic books weren't always the comic books that I'd read when I was a kid. Like anyone else, I'd, I bought the odd Spider-Man and the odd X-Men when I was younger, but um, I'd really dropped out of it by by that point. And this kind of, I credit this with getting me into, you know, interesting underground comics or um, or graphic novels, I guess. Film, um, stuff that deals with, with more personal issues. Okay, um, yeah. Like as an art form, I quite like that the freedom you have with a with a comic book is that you can create something really immersive, and as long as you can like imagine it and sketch it out roughly enough on a page that somebody can can understand it, you can kind of do what you want. Out of the two characters, Devlin, you said you identified with them. Are yep. you more of an Enid or a Rebecca? I would say is this or even is a this Seymour? like a well, um, I've I've grown into a Seymour. I saw that girdle as well the last time I visited. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's keeping me in check. I, w- I was probably more of a, a, a Rebecca with aspirations of an Enid. This is like when uh, 
a few years ago when everyone used to ask which sex in the city you were. Oh, Carrie, always. <laughs> but, <laughs> Just um, a big over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess like like Rebecca, I was working like service industry jobs for an hourly rate, uh, hourly wage, and uh, but like like Enid, I I always kind of enjoyed sort of creative pursuits and stuff. I always thought to some extent that I was creative, but, but I had like a lack of confidence in it and a lack of focus and never really knew what I wanted to do with it. And I never really felt particularly encouraged or like that I had much of a, an atmosphere that I would be able to do. I mean, like also the, the sense of kind of social alienation that they have Darlington in like the late nineties to early two thousands was not a particularly great place to, to walk around. What, what did you used to call like the, the, the skater kids? in your towns because oh. every town has a word for we in, in darlington you, you were a bogger oh god a bogger a bogger jesus and well, so, no, we were uh the grungers right in stoke that's a much nicer phrase <laughs> what about in leicester good question just skateboarder is what oh, okay. we were kind of... <laughs> yeah <laughs> used to hang out at vicky yeah. park with the skateboards and baggy jeans and chains on our wallets that would yeah 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 so um so yeah in in darlington you were a bogger and if you're a bogger, you were a, um, kind of weirdly a, a, a target of an unusual amount of abuse. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I went, yeah. got pasty thrown at my head. Did you bite it in midair? No, it hit me square, <laughs> in, it hit me square <laughs> in the back of the head. Um, and, you know. Hence on, the girdle, I you guess. You need to work yeah, on those exactly. reflexes, mate. <laughs> yeah. On the back of the head. I had blue hair at the time as well, so you could really what? see it. All, all the gravy got in my hair. Did you really? Um, you had yeah. blue hair. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm um, unfamiliar with this. Wow. Well, yeah. yeah, no, it was all gone by the time I met you guys. Yeah, and for those of you that have not met Devlin yet, it's all gone now just through natural attrition, hasn't it? Really? You're a terrible person in many ways, Gavin. <laughs> 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 uh, had either of you seen it before? I think we watched it together. Oh, really? In the second year. Yeah, I think so. I definitely remember you having the DVD in your collection. But I, I will say that it didn't leave much of an impression on me other than I thought it was hilarious when I first saw it. Right. And revisiting it for <clears throat> this episode is the first time I've seen it since, what? So it's going to be like 15 God, yeah. years. Well, not 15 years. Like 10, 10, 12 years ago. And um, I have a whole different outlook on it. When I first saw it, I think it it sort of just passed me by. How can it pass you by if you found it hilarious? Uh, no, I just, no, but I think I just put it in the category of comedy. I think at the time, I just put it in, I lumped it in there with like Napoleon Dynamite, I guess. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah was, that would have been really out. Wrong. That would have been out basically at the time that we watched it together because well, it was like mid 2000s. So mm-hmm. um, that would make sense. Also, if you go back and watch any of the, the trailers from when this was originally released, they did play it up as more of a, I don't know, almost like a kind of a slightly more Generation X cool version of Mole Rats or something. Yeah, Mole Rats or Empire Records. Yeah. Or it just had that had that feel, didn't it? You assume that all the themes are going to be aimed at a younger audience, but actually, actually, it's far more poignant than that. Right. Did, had you seen it before, Patrick? I hadn't. No. Uh, but oh wow, so you're coming in completely fresh. Yeah, but there was a few things. There was a few scenes I was oddly familiar with. Was it because of mine and John Murphy's incessant quoting of this film? I was wondering that. And just to tie in, uh, we, we met a friend recently, Aidan, uh, if he's listening over in Vancouver. Hello. 
And um, I think you two quoted it a lot to each other as well, or John Murphy. It was one of you, you groups. But I think Aiden, or just talking to comic books as well, reminds me, we met him recently and he told us on one of his first jobs, he was given per diems, money to spend on meals a day, and he didn't really understand what they asked, so went straight to the comic book shop in Leeds and blew £170 on comic books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you know, I'm, sorry. I'm pretty sure I remember that hole as well. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> That's what, yeah, and I did remember some scenes were familiar. I think I had seen a bit of Doug before in different places. Right. Also, um, he's, he's in a, uh, he had a, a small modicum of pop culture success when he was in M. Um, Scary uh, movie. He was in a Red Hot Chili Peppers video. Oh, that, yes, yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't That's remember right. which one. He played a taxi driver. Well, he played the, basically the character that he's in in this. Yeah, it's like a, a Californication era. I don't know which, which song. Uh, it doesn't matter. By, the, by the way, it was by the way. Yeah. Well, Devlin, why don't you give us the plot to Ghost World? Okay. It's going to be very brief because I forgot to write one. And also, uh, <laughs> it's not a particularly plot heavy <laughs> film. So, uh, Are you rebelling on the podcast here by not doing any prep for it, just as Enid does? Is that what's going on here? Mm-hmm. How punk? <laughs> Are you 1977 original punk rock? Uh, Obviously, everyone's too okay. stupid. That was where the blue hair came from. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah of course. Okay. When, at the age of 17, I was well into original <laughs> 1977 punk, and it was not at all inspired <laughs> by shitty California new metal. <laughs> Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson play best friends Enid and Rebecca, who, bonded by their outsider status, face the harsh realities of post-graduation life as their relationship is tested by their diverging priorities and Enid's increasing interest in cranky record-obsessive Seymour, played by Steve Buscemi. There you go. And as we mentioned, it's based on a, on a, a comic book. The, the distinctions between comic books and graphic novels tend to be a little bit hazy. Some people get a bit uh, obsessive you could say as to whether it's one thing or another um because this one was published uh serially i would assume it's a comic book because it came out um in issues over an amount of time as opposed to just being one solid piece of work that was that was just made and released all at once uh by a writer called daniel Klaus, who weirdly outside of this film is probably best known for being inadvertently the person who destroyed what remained of Shia LaBeouf's sanity. Yeah, I know. I read that. I couldn't believe it. So when Shia LaBeouf became a tooth-pulling, bag-wearing, sky-writing weirdo, it's because he had plagiarized the Daniel Klaus comic book into a short film. What? Sorry, of Ghostwood or of um, April? I think that the short film was HowardCantor.com. Okay. Or maybe that was the name of the comic book. It's not a comic I'm actually familiar with of his, but it's about a, a film critic. And Shia LaBeouf had basically taken it like panel for panel and submitted it to a few festivals and it was getting some some high praise. And it wasn't even that Daniel Klaus caught him out. It was that, you know, someone else who'd seen it happened to notice the similarities. Oh, wow. Um and instead of uh, just owning up to it, uh, Shia LaBeouf then decided he was going to hire a skywriter to write "I'm sorry, Daniel Klaus" in the in the air, what? and that was that precipitated a several year decline. I don't, I mean, it wasn't Daniel Klaus' fault. I would imagine that at that point Shia LaBeouf was pretty strung out anyway. But mm. yeah, it was just an odd little confluence of 
Hollywood tales. The screenplay, so he wrote the screenplay alongside uh, Terry Zweigoff, the director, who was part of the underground comic scene in the 60s and 70s in San Francisco, especially in the 70s. Alongside R. Crumb, who's seen as kind of the, I guess, the kind of godfather of the scene, which led to him making a documentary over the course of, I think it was almost a decade he spent making the documentary Crumb, which is what uh, Terry Zorgoff uh, achieved his first big success on. And apart from that, Terry Zorgoff's career has been very quiet. Yeah, he did uh, Bad Santa, didn't he? Yeah. He did Bad Santa, and uh, he and Klaus reunited to um, to make another uh, feature film based on one of Daniel Klaus' comics, Art School Confidential with Max Mingala, which was not as successful as Ghost World, either as a viewing experience or financially. So we start the film, camera moves across a row of identical blocked apartments, and we peer into the lives of the inhabitants. Uh, They appear to be living a pretty banal existence. So we've got like a woman staring out of the window, smoking, large topless man biting his nails, which fully reminded me of of myself, and possibly you, (laughs) Devlin, when you were living in Japan. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I was very, very slim when I was living. Oh, no, so, yeah, it's, it's me then that it reminds me of. Uh, uh, and I, I was smoking out of a window and looking at this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got an, well, you got uh, an empty diner table with uh, an exercise bike and uh, <laughs> a large couple watching TV whilst their son repeatedly smacks something on the ground. <laughs> Intercut with this long tracking shot is this vibrant, energetic Indian song. Excuse my butchery right now. Janpi Hekaho, <laughs> uh, which is a popular Indian <laughs> Hollywood song. Good try. I thought I'd mask it by just being jovial. Well done. Uh, yeah, it, it was, it's a song from the 1965 Bollywood film called Gun Man. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really vibrant opening. And what I really like about it is it starts off a visual motif that goes throughout this film of square spaces. So all our characters in this world, I'm guessing, is it LA? It is. Devlin, in the, it is LA, it, isn't it? They want it to really not be anywhere yeah. specific. Certainly where it was shot, but I, yeah, I, I think the, um, we're, we're kind of in anonymous suburbs, yeah. if possible. So, and, and all our characters uh, throughout the film, they all live in these confined square spaces. And uh, I just really like, I do like this opening. I think it's very, very strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it really kind of, it it establishes a lot of the things that, that you need to know going forward, which is that uh, the film has a view of a lot of uh, the population as being kind of drab, boring, kind mm-hmm. of normals. And then you have uh, the the contrast of this, this fascinating, energetic, interesting person who has esoteric interests and she dances around and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it led me to think, when, when you're in your teenage years, were you like me where you just sought out the obscure music? You know, anything that is not Britney Spears and Spice Girls was, was my jam. So I would, I would go into HMV when it was popular and dig out CDs of bands that are just purely obscure. And every now and again, I'd come up like a real gem, like Joy Zipper. And then other times I'd get chicks with guitars, which were rubbish, <laughs> but I liked them because no one had ever heard of them. I've still never heard of them. Oh, no, wait, you played me a song of <laughs> a couple of weeks back and it was terrible. <laughs> right, <laughs> it, yeah. 
um but no i used to yeah i, I used to do ex- exactly the same i say used to still do yeah you um, still do don't you i mean and you've picked ghost world as our first comic book film you didn't pick spawn which is what me and patrick actually guessed yeah. that you would <laughs> you touched upon it when you were explaining the background to this Dublin. I'm not someone who read any comic books that were of this kind of ilk, apart from superhero stuff. My, my Batman okay. and my dad was obsessed with Spider-Man when he was younger, so I used to read some of his stuff as well. So going into this, I was expecting something like American Splendor, that kind of thing. Oh, right, right. Which came a few years after this, so I was thinking yeah. oh, maybe influence that, okay. But watching it, I was completely most of the time unaware I was watching a comic book film you know yeah, in, in, in the in the crude sense of the word is yeah well the the comic is extremely deadpan yeah you can like tell more, more so than the than the film I, I won't labor the points too much but I, I will mention up front that certain sequences of this are taken uh line for line and in some cases even the shot composition like you said galley um a lot of the film is uh, is boxed in in squares mm. Mm-hmm. The comic book is essentially square panels, like repeated square panels, nine per page. So um, uh, everything is boxed in, completely squared off. Um, but there are other elements which were added for the film. And essentially anything that you could describe as a plot was basically added by uh, Zweigoff and Klaus together as screenwriters. Uh, Seymour, for example, does not exist in the comic. Does he not? He does oh, not. Wow. Not, in any, not in any shape or form. Uh, oh. There is a they, they set somebody up on a uh, a fake blind date, but it is not Seymour, and he never reappears. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know what? Isn't that as well um, evidence as to why anything can be adapted, and you can just use anything as a jump off point? I think that's fantastic. I I, I wouldn't have guessed that at all. Wow! But didn't Zogoff base Seymour on himself as well? So there was an autobiographical sense to it, didn't that? Yeah, exactly. Um, he said that uh, initially he just wanted there to be a character of, of that was like a Seymour, just so that he could um, smuggle his favorite records <laughs> into the soundtrack. <laughs> he really does collect um, vintage uh, blues and uh, ragtime music, and he wanted to What's use that? it when he took it to the um, uh, to the studios. They saw that it was a film about two eighteen-year-old girls, mm. so they wanted to stuff it with like pop hits. Which uh, later on, when they when they start messing around with the um, the jukeboxes in the Wowsville Diner, I kind of feel like maybe that's a bit of a dig. Zweigoff's visual style, yeah. as such, his directing is very. I, I don't know what the word is to say, but it's very matter of a fact. You know, he just shoots what the scene dictates. The blocking is all very. I don't confined, like you said, Devlin. So uh, I do think they were going for a certain aesthetic. There's a nice stillness to it, isn't there? I think there's a nice colour palette to the film. When you're in Seymour's room, it's really drab and greasy and dark, and the girls have... I think the costume's very good on the Enid and Rebecca as well that, that do part comic book. The costume designer, I, I, I looked up because, um, as I said, I, I also thought the costumes were great. It was uh, Mary Zoffries, I believe her name is. Um, she's also the Coen Brothers' go-to costume oh, cool. designer. So. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. In terms of, like, yeah, those kind of striking colours, like mm. pulling Enid especially off the That, off that the handmade T-shirt, the shirts and stuff, that they all look yeah. so cool. One of the things I really like about this film, and it's all summed up in this opening graduation scene, is I do think that the humour is very 
British. Do you have an example of a joke? Well, straight away, this so we we have the graduation sign, which is sponsored by Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> yeah. and Tropicana, which I think is brilliant. And then um, and then we have this like crowd that are applauding, and then we just cut to this <laughs> this mid shot of a girl with a head brace who looks miserable, <laughs> and you can't help but just laugh. And then when she starts to speak, she talks about the key things to life and and how. <laughs> Humor is having having a sense of humor is key. But that sentence immediately immediately follows her saying that, and I'm just thankful that more people besides me and I can't remember the other girl's name, Claire or something, weren't hurt in the accident. <laughs> High school is like the training wheels for the bicycle of real life. It is a time when young people can explore different fields of interest and hopefully learn from their experiences. In coming to terms with my own personal setback, I have been able to learn that I don't need to rely on drugs and alcohol, and that I'm very lucky that more people, besides myself and Carrie, weren't injured in the accident. And I have learned that to overcome life's obstacles, you need faith, hope, and above all, a sense of humor. I mentioned it before, Napoleon's Dynamite. You've got to think that this film was hugely influential to that film. And yeah. even uh, Juno. Yeah. It feels like I haven't seen Juno in a long time, but I remember Juno feeling like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think so. I, maybe, um, I think we'd mentioned at one point um, that of a, another film around this era that it kind of echoes visually is Office Space. Okay, it oh, does, yeah. yeah. Which, um, like these really flat deadpan compositions that just allow for, like oftentimes, like allowing so much space makes all these punchlines land a lot better because the energy of it is so kind of off kilter in both films that sometimes all it takes is like a hard edit to something and it's enough to be a punchline. Do, do you make a connection with this with the Mumblecore movies at all? And certainly in the age of the people yeah. involved in, in Mumblecore would have would have been their like yeah. our age, which means that this would have been a film that they came of age with. Yeah, I could I could imagine that being the case. Just to, just to say, starting off, we understand that they're very good friends from school, and now that it's after school, that one of Rebecca's biggest uh, kind of aims or goals with her friend Enid is they want to move in together. Gotta buy a flat, don't they? And we see that Enid's having to take a summer class, so she checks out a diploma and she failed art and again her attitude is like, Who would have thought that you you know, an F <laughs> fail? In this like very, very early exchanges, I noticed that they really front load it with a lot of more outright humorous stuff, and especially more of their very, very cutting lines. Like I think mm. they're really trying to sell out their stall early. Must have been a little bit taken aback that we heard the word retard so early. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on, just to add to that, there's when she leaves the note on Josh's door and says, we came around to fuck you, but you're not here, so you are gay as well. You know, it's, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely a, a joke of the time that hasn't mm-hmm. aged well now. And when we're at the, when we're at the party, we... Um, 
we can see that they're connected. They're on the same wavelength, aren't they? Literally, as they sway to this dreadful yeah. graduation party music. We'll probably get into it later on when they do the more nefarious things. But one of the criticisms I read, contemporary and also reviews of the time, was that people found it difficult to get on board with well, Enid and Rebecca. Because they are... Yeah, and, well, that, exactly. That, that's exactly it. I mean, I think you can enjoy a film in spite of mm-hmm. a protagonist. You don't necessarily always need to uh, love them and love everything they do, as long as they're a, a fully fleshed out character, which I, I do think both of these yeah. are. They are the outsiders. They are a bit snarky, mm. a bit smug, but they also are teenagers. So yeah. I kind yeah. of forgave them for that. But it's the observation, isn't it? It's the observation. I think you've got to, to listen and pay attention to what they're saying because there's that punk theme within it and it's easy to criticise them as characters you don't like if you don't like them, but they've got things to say and the filmmaker's got things to say through them. It is it is quite refreshing of a film to have quite a downbeat main character that you're not sure whether you like them or not to start with. Yeah, because the way that they treat the... I mean, she is... She is annoying. But the way they treat the girl who comes up to them, <laughs> when she just comes up, doesn't she? She's just yeah, like, yeah, uh, so positive, so over-friendly. But in a way, when I was watching it again, I was thinking like, so Enid internalizes her kind of insecurities and this girl clearly externalizes it by being overly positive. Yeah. But they're both one of the same. It's just that they choose to, um, you know, they choose to act it out differently, don't they? But... The way that they cut it down. Don't, don't turn around. Why? Why? Don't turn around. Yeah. Oh my God. You guys, I can't believe we made it. Yeah. You graduated high school. How totally amazing. So what are you guys doing this summer? Nothing. Well, I'm going to this actress workshop and I'm hoping to start auditions soon. <laughs> oh, we have to get together this summer. Yeah. That'll definitely happen. Well, bye, you guys. <laughs> Congratulations. It's a really good contrast from, I suppose, what we're used to from um, teenage American films. We've got, it's not far after uh, American Pie, for example, where it, it's fun-loving teens that are on a goal to get laid or, you know, bubbly girls that are in that. And maybe a bit more, in American films, you're a bit more used to, like in uh, Napoleon Dynamite as well, the prom queen and that aspect of things, but we're very clearly not looking at that side of things. We're looking at the side of the Napoleon Dynamites and the the the, odd, the less popular people, should we say. One of the things they also do really quickly is establish the one conflict that's going to run throughout between the two friends, which is boys. So when Enid and Rebecca go and get some punch, he looks like he's dressed, his hair looks like from the 80s, but he pops over. <laughs> you can tell immediately that he's really interested in uh, Rebecca, in ScarJo. And, and Enid's kind of pushed to the side. And I do like the way that it's very simple, the way that where Zweigoff uh, puts the camera. But she's so isolated on the left-hand side. And you can immediately see that conflict. And like I said, I see Enid's insecurities in that moment. And the way that she butts in to almost save her friend. But Rebecca seemed like she was receptive to his chatter. Doesn't Enid say, hello, I am here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 (laughs) His response is just a, hey. 
yeah. Yeah, and then when he's you know he's mid, he, he's majoring in business, and she just grabs Rebecca by the wrist and drags her over to um to say terrible things about about some couple. So they 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 talk about uh, uh, two people who are uh, making out on on a chair, and she says, "Oh my god, are they going out?" And then says, if we get lucky, he'll get AIDS when he date rapes her. Yeah. But it's the it's the punk character coming through. Yeah. But it, it also it lays out the the kind of it lays out the um the, the bond that they have because it's like they only understand each other. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that kind of it's already what's great is that it's showing you um this this really uh symbiotic close friendship and it's it's like the entire film is just about the threads being pulled out of a friendship until there's nothing left and Mm -hmm. it shows that the only time they ever connect and the only time they ever get on properly is when they have something to mutually hate and i guess because it was a, a friendship that was formed in high school and high school is is just such a pressure cooker like a cauldron whereby basically the limits of your universe are a few hundred people that you happen to have been arbitrarily stuck in a building with for years on end you would you would naturally just if you're if you find someone who's on that same wavelength as you you just cling to them and then you develop this little incestuous bubble and then once you're out and you're exposed to the world it it, it just shows how quickly uh, like I said, the, the priorities change and, and other things happen and things get in the way. And every time you see these little fractures opening in the friendship, it's like something else comes along that they can laugh at or make fun of that just temporarily pulls them back together and just papers over the cracks. And even when they do come together, you can see that they disagree on certain things. So when Enid sees, uh, is his name Ted? Oh, Dennis. Dennis, that's it. The yeah. the, gaw- the dorky kid just eating cake. And Enid just says, oh, isn't it sad? You know, we'll never see Dennis again. She says, good. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, at times, Rebecca is far more cutting than Enid. I do like the melancholy in that scene. Though. Yeah. I, I quite like their relationship and the way they talk to each other. It's definitely, there's definitely chemistry there. You can tell what you believe that they're friends. And like Devlin said, you've they found solace in each other with how they can express each themselves and almost trust each other to say what they want to say and not be judged and agree and support. It's a good relationship at the mm-hmm. beginning of the film, I think. And then we, we move on, and it's another character that informs us about Enid. Her relationship with her father is really disjointed. They don't seem to ever connect at any point during the film. He seems genuinely scared of her most of the time. Yeah, he does, and he he seems he's weak and little subtle things like he's having fucking loads of jam on his sandwich, <laughs> and, and she's having cereal. But he seems weak, nervous, mm. kind of tragic. Reminds you a bit of Seymour a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. I I got a little bit of that. But... I see that. Yeah. <laughs> that shot's very good though when they're having breakfast yeah. either end of the table to each other that the the staging of that I, I don't think it's supposed to be missed but the divide between them the space that's between them there mm-hmm. as they try and express each other well it's a, and, it, and it's a brilliant advert that is the space between them is it crazy for an oil company to care about the environment we don't think so i already told you i'm not going to college yeah, well I, I think it's a good idea to keep all your options open yeah you you could even enroll in the winter quarter 
you could uh, actually you could live here and go to the city college part time, and uh, I don't know, still get a job if you want. Look at me, I'm not even listening to a word you're saying. A similar advert plays uh, right at the end when we're in hospital with Seymour. I just I like oh, I just yeah. love these these little touches that they that they put in, and and we should mention that her dad is played by uh, the great Bob Balaban. Bob Balaban, yes, who is mm-hmm. uh, reliably tremendous in basically everything, but especially uh, best in show. You might recognize him from his Phoebe Buffay's dad and friends as well. So when when he starts talking about Maxine, which is clearly an ex-wife, <laughs> that Maxine is coming back, and and this is something that is horrifying to Enid. Uh, she's played by Terry Gar. It's so awkward That's... when she comes back, isn't yeah. it? And... Oh god! Oh, and oh, she, god. she plays like such a fantastic. Like stepmom from hell type. It's that um that sentence that she says that's obviously all about her. Like I can't help but think that I had a little bit part to play in your upbringing. Oh God, shut the fuck up! <laughs> <laughs> you can you can just you feel for Enid, but you can also you can fill in. It's crazy. It seems to leave you a bit of space to try and fill in the the rest of the plot. Like her her mom is a non factor in the story. Mm-hmm. Um. So you don't know whether she left or whether she's no longer around or whether she's no longer alive. It just um, there's there's just enough in the subtext of the way Enid responds to and reacts to the rest of the world that just shows that you know she's clearly harboring a lot of resentment. And then we uh, we come on to Enid at the diner with the Satanist. Is it a diner? No, sorry, it's a cafe. Yeah. cafe. Ooh, you know what cafe it is? It's the cafe where. where Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke first sit in training day. Same cafe, same booth. Ah, well. Thanks very much, IMDb trivia that I looked up this morning. (laughs) Very good. Very good trivia. Makes the film better. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to go into like Yoda style speak then. Makes the film better. Yeah, Enid's Enid's drawing a couple sat across from from the diner and uh, Rebecca joins her. And uh, Rebecca immediately, immediately, like you said, Patrick, we've already set this up. She's talking about looking for an apartment. And at this point in the film, Scarlett Johansson's Johansson. performance, she's, pardon me. <laughs> jo- Johansson. 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 Oh, I thought it was a silent J. <laughs> a soft J, like yogging. She hasn't gone <laughs> yogging. <laughs> I didn't want to just, dis- I didn't want to. Disturb Devlin earlier when he was full flow, but I'll disturb you. I want to disturb Devlin when he was also wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Scarlett Johansson, uh, she's well she's really excitable. She's kind of got a smile on her face. One of the only times you'll see in this film, and uh, and you can tell Enid's like not fully on board with the idea, and she's mm. more interested in drawing the the Satanists, sketching the Satanists, which it, that is like. All that is straight from from the comic. They even look yeah. The casting is, is the artwork. Is the artwork his own? Uh, actually, the artwork is uh, is done by Sophie Crum, which is R. Crum's daughter, who is also oh, okay. a comics artist in her own right. She's done. I read some of her work in um, an anthology called Moam. She's very good. I think uh, wow. Zweigoff just called her in. He was insistent that none of the artwork uh, in this and also later when we get into uh, Enid's remedial art class. They didn't want any of the artwork to be made by production designers because they said it's always either going to look too good or too fake. So um, mm-hmm. they were like scouring and and asking, you know, actual teams to make all that work. 
which is pretty cool. We we see this character. He he comes up a couple of times. Uh, I, I never got his name in the film in the two watches. He's got a credit because he's he's a a character in the comics. His name's John Ellis, but you don't you don't know that from the film. His yeah. his subplot is extremely short. Is there just to antagonize Enid with some anti-Semitism? And uh, and then she suggests to Rebecca that we, they should follow the Satanists. And at this point in the film, they are still symbiotic, aren't they? They're still thinking one of the same so they both agree mm-hmm. they start following them and then they never really explain it but it's just quite a funny joke when they're like how do they get so far ahead of us and it's like <laughs> yeah and they uh, they come across this wowsville diner and i couldn't help before we even get into this scene think of when i came out of uh, i think it was waterloo station and there was an ed's diner you ever been in one of those yep. You know, I have their their milkshakes are really oh, they're good. good. They do have a really good butterscotch uh, malt, don't they? It's really good, but it does feel a bit Wellsville inside. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. First thing you hear when they step straight into the fifties is some some guy yelling, "We off the hook!" <laughs> <laughs> Every all of the like we said the 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 oil company advert and the rap at the graduation and um the the fake films that we get later all of this all of these little weird touches of world building are just so good all the way through it well the filmmakers they're pretty blunt with the satire on yeah. modern american culture uh, and i think it's this is like the first of many isn't it throughout the whole film of the kind of the commercialization of the cornerstone of americana i guess that's what they're yeah. driving at you know the 50s diner the blues the poster it's something that clearly klaus had on his mind and and, and there's the scenes later on with the art class which feel very very deeply personal yeah i think the art class stuff is, is definitely and when we get there it's definitely from from klaus i, I think this kind of they probably share this generalized blanket disdain for modern society, but I would imagine Zweigoff seems like the crankier old man of the two. I think he's probably contributing a lot of this. Because it, it, I guess it just speaks of a repurposed, repackaged culture. You know, music, yeah, music, art, films. Yeah, they all feel like pretty broad targets, but the way that they execute it is genuinely hilarious, isn't it? I mean, when yeah. when the when Weird Al turns up. The waiter. I mean, you can't help but just laugh, can you? And the, the guy who plays him is so, so funny. Could we uh, could we possibly get the clip of his line delivery placed in here? Because uh... we we may. Let's let's listen to uh, Rebecca and Enid uh, speak to Al, the waiter. Hey, check out the awesome fifties hairdo on our waiter. Hi, my name is Alan, and I'll be your waiter this afternoon. Hi, Al. Can we call you Weird Al? I'd imagine so. They're pretty rude, aren't they, to ask him, can we call you Weird Al? <laughs> <laughs> his, reply, his reply is just so perfect. <laughs> so many little, so many tiny little parts in this are played so well. Yeah. Like, every little minor character is is just, they all fit. Nobody feels out of place. <laughs> and, uh, and it's at this point that Enid goes through the personal ads in the paper. And again, I think Rebecca's probably the more cruel out of the two. She's the one that says we should call him. Yeah, but she's always encouraging. She doesn't, you know, she's one of those that dares Enid to do stuff. You don't, I don't think she'd do it. She doesn't pick up the phone. Yeah, she yeah. she's one of those friends. Like, yeah. I dare you mm-hmm. to do it, but she'd never. And Enid is so fuck you world. Mm. She, she doesn't care, does she? 
as teenagers, I think we've all probably done something as inconsiderate and wankish as that. Do you remember constant prank calls? Yeah. And that was a fun yeah. thing. You remember the Arnie soundboard that people used to do that? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. My favorite was the, uh, the, the John McLean soundboard. <laughs> yeah. Where one of them was just, uh, I'm from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. Yeah, that was, yeah. It was around this era, wasn't it? Like early, early internet, like soundboard. Well, there was a film calls, about yeah. someone making prank calls in the mid nineties. I can't remember what it was called. Now it was. There's, a, there's apparently something massive in the states called the Jerky Boys. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. I, I, I don't know anything about it outside of references on uh, Arrested Development, but <laughs> I, I imagine it was a big deal. But it sets um, up. I mean, <laughs> it's it's an important to the story that. It's Seymour's lonely heart sad, and they've replied to it, left him a voicemail, yeah. and told them told him to meet him at their favourite restaurant. We have the little phone call, and and uh, uh, we have a little glimpse of the the weirdest comedian in America, who they slate for wearing Nikes, which is one of oh, a couple yeah. of times that Nikes get called out for being, you know, again a sort of hallmark of. Empty consumerism. Ah, but it's a nice touch, though, Devlin, because it's Rebecca that's recommending it to Enid. The transition into conformity or into the social structures is is easier for Rebecca to accept than Enid. She's the one who spots the Nikes and like. And then they go visit uh, their their friend Josh at the sidewalk. The film does just get hijacked for three minutes, and it's one of the funniest lines. What's up, Josh? Hey, give me two packs of cigarettes today. Working overtime. 16 hours. And, uh, nature's nectar. Wake up juice. And give me, uh, like, six of these beef jerkies. Hungry enough to chew the crotch out of a ragdoll. Hey! Hey! You! How many times I tell you? No chef, no service. Get the hell out of my store. What do you think this is? Club Med? America, dude, learn the rules. This uh, this redneck character is like topless with a sort of vest <laughs> two tan back, on. Two backs <laughs> in six, <laughs> And I don't really know this actor other than when I looked at his um, his filmography, he'd obviously been the Dewey character in the scary movie, which he was very funny in that. And I did no- obviously notice the Red Hot Chili Peppers thing. But was he an SNL comedian? What, it's like it's like the US equivalent of um, Angelos from Shooting Stars. <laughs> Just a random... Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, yeah. But, but in, I think possibly trapped in a in a special circle of hell, which is that <laughs> because of the, the officer doofy thing. So he's locked into those guys. Yeah. And I think was the, the Friedberg seltzer types, mm. the parody movies that aren't even parody movies. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I bet he's, he's done, just, done loads of those. He's now. still doing some. He was in one this year called the walking deceased. They're not even trying anymore. <laughs> wow. His character name was Sheriff Lincoln, Ugh. which is just Andrew Lincoln's real name. Oh. Like, this is the level we're operating at. So I feel bad for that guy because he, like you say, he hijacks this film and is funny as fuck. (laughs) The weirdos or the perceived weirdos in this film are celebrated, celebrated by Enid. And at this point, Mm -hmm. Enid and Rebecca are like, this guy is the greatest. Yeah. And it's Josh who works there. who's like, he spends more time in here than even I do. And then later on, when we have the weirdo who turns up when Rebecca's working at the coffee shop, 
she's jaded by it at that point and she's like no yeah. it's not cool at all it, it does does serve some somewhat of a purpose because it then yeah. is later paralleled later on in the film well now we're back into Wowsville diner we're back into Wowsville, aren't we? Yeah. So uh, Enid, Rebecca, and Josh—he's driven them—are uh, are waiting for Seymour to turn up. And this is, well, this is the inciting incident in the film, isn't it? Uh, he turns up. There's a couple of funny lines uh, when Enid's like, "Oh my god, he's ordered a glass of milk." <laughs> Giant glass <laughs> of milk. <laughs> but we haven't talked about any of the performances yet. But we'll talk. Let's talk about Busemi in the whole film because he's uh, well I go, Th- Thora Birch has got the notoriety from American Beauty but Steve Buscemi is the one that you would know at this point in 2001 with his indie credentials well, like I said he, I think he'd be a draw for a lot of people I think he's still very much in like guest appearances indie movies and like he's a respected like character actor but uh, if you think we're, we're a couple of years after Big Lebowski, but in that he was, you know, he was a smallish part. Hmm. Um, he was a small part of Reservoir Dogs. Conner, he yeah, stole he, the, stole the yeah, scenes. Of yeah, and... he's one of those actors that just seems um, to have perfected the dual performance of both being quiet and unassuming and then shake him like a bottle of Coke and he will just burst out into uncontrollable rage. And he nails that in this film. The, oh he's a really good narrator as well. And because um, he narrate, well, not narrates, but he's the guide audio tour on the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. And it's awesome listening to him talk you through all the gangster shit that goes on, that went on there. Yeah, I was, yeah, it was, it was really good. I highly recommend. But he's, he's one of those people as well that just seems to be impervious to critical and commercial backlash. Like he can turn up in a Happy Madison film and then be in a Coen Brothers film and then being Con Air. It's just weird. Isn't it? he's, had a, he's a very strange career. I don't know if you've ever seen The Sopranos, but he's fantastic in The Sopranos. Oh, yeah. So and he's good. really, really good in Boardwalk Empire. It's all the quiet things he does, though, isn't it? It's all the little nuance. Just He's, he's quite physical without you realising how physical he is because his body shape, the way he moves, it's all part of his acting. Mm-hmm. And he's really good in this because... He dials it down because obviously at moments this film can get quite big with the humour and with some of the the satire, but he really does ground it. And um, I think he's doing really strong work in this film. I was very, very impressed re-watching it again. Well, we, we get an example of it straight away here, don't we? Because in, he's come to the diner and he's been stood up because it's been a, it's a nasty prank on him, a cruel sense, and he's genuinely looking for companionship. And it's, forgive me, I'm wrong. We're straight after this. He's in the car and he blows up, doesn't he? He has this moment to himself. And it's it's just wonderful to see the, the moments in the diner, the the quiet stuff, and then the, we'll call it range, but call it, it's just sheer emotion in the car. I was really, I think you, he's really onto a winner straight away here. It sets up his character, yep. the frustration, the 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 sadness, everything. It's great. And, and I, what I really like as well is, again, not forgetting that Enid is a teenager. She feels guilt, but it's not remorse. When they follow him and they realize that he lives in the neighborhood, she almost tries to explain away the situation, doesn't it? Like, oh, it must happen to him all the time. She's validating it. It's, it's interesting that it comes, that it comes um, so, so early in the film. 
uh, in the comic. This is quite a big pivotal thing. It's like one of the few times where they actually, um, Enid and Rebecca are confronted with consequences for their actions. Like somebody feels bad because of them. And because this guy just walks out of the, the diner and then he just looks fucking miserable and then Josh doesn't find it funny and they just mm. drive away. And that's the whole episode over with, but it just sort of hangs over the rest of the comic as like, like a real melancholy. Whereas I think they changed the tenor of it by making Steve Buscemi get so comedically furious mm. straight after and then whiplashing back to him being fine with it. But it opens up this whole other plot for them to, yeah. But it is still, it's still the inciting incident, like you said, in that it's it's the thing that it sort of drives a stake in that creates the fissure that eventually ends up kind of breaking this friendship up. I think that's what you're saying there about Eden as well. It's very telling because this film, we've already discussed, it's not quite a traditional film in, in a sense of comic book or I, I find it, a very refreshing narrative as well and in the end you can tell that the remorse isn't really eating it because it's not her that's apologized to um to see him it's not her that's confided in him and told him which you'd think we'd be setting up for a natural uh resolution for her there but it's it's rebecca and rebecca is that friend who maybe doesn't mind t- saying it because it, it's her to uh, that regrets it more and I think that's telling of both characters Rebecca's the more mature one he's the the kind of lost and more immature uh, adult shall we say um, yeah I don't know whether you, you agree with that or, or if that made sense actually but that's the way I, I saw I thought maybe it was it was more that she was quite willing to to take her frustrations on Enid out on Seymour during that scene that she was quite happy to, yeah. to and she was always jealous of their friendship together and, and thus she was quite happy to to blow it up I guess it's it's almost like um like one of those romantic comedy subplots like uh like there's always the second act thing in the romantic comedy whereby the the little lie that starts the romance is mm-hmm. always waiting yeah, yeah. to be discovered to mm-hmm. kind of blow up second act so like i'm thinking things i hate about you when you find out that uh heath ledger has been getting paid to to go out with um uh the girl from riviera whose name i can't remember but that leads us on to mirror father mirror (laughs) and can i just say that this is pretty over satire clearly klaus and zygoff have got uh, a real a real umbrage but the way, and I've forgotten the actress's name, but she's brilliant in To Die For. Oh, she's, it's, and, uh, yeah, she's yeah, so yeah, good in this film. So good. She just encapsulates that type. And I think we met them. I'm not going to name names, but we've met this type at uni. And she nails it. I was going to say that I, I think this is something that we've come across quite a bit, right? Especially in our forays into like... Yep council funded short films you know where you gotta hit the quota and they've got to be meaningful and artistic Mm -hmm. and it's all horseshit a little thing that i learned from uh uh, watching an interview with Ileana douglas is that it was uh, a lot of this character was kind of her idea um her her and zweigoff created this little video project together and it was her idea to be um like a, a failing performance artist so you know that 
the leotards and the floaty skirts and stuff. Now, my own background is in video and performance art, but I'm hoping that doesn't influence you too much and you'll find your own ways of externalizing the internal. And at the end of the summer, this class has been invited to participate in a show of high school art at the Neighborhood Activity Center. The title of the show will be Brotherhood and Community Art as Dialogue. Are there any questions so far? So when I mentioned that um, uh, Zweigoff and Klaus uh, collaborated on another feature film, which was Art School Confidential, a lot of the stuff from these scenes is lifted directly from the Art School Confidential comic, which is another series which ran a few years before Ghost World in the same comic series in, in eight. Okay. Uh, Tampon and Teacup is straight out of the comic. Oh, brilliant. But you, you know what, though, Devlin? Like, even though I do love all the art class scenes, I think it's better that it's just sprinkled into a narrative than I don't think I'd I don't think I'd watch a whole film of this because I think it might get a little bit um, tiresome. It's a bit it's a bit inside baseball. It's a bit insular. It, it doesn't have the same kind of universality. Whereas, but it'd have to be really, really well written, mm, yeah, to 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 keep your attention if you're not part of that world. But I think we've all at least drawn an apple in art class in secondary school, so you can understand that frustrated artist teacher who tries to put upon themselves on the student. I love the way that she takes the, um, that she's like, oh, it's a sign of repressed femininity. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> just takes over. Yeah. But one of the, one of the important uh, things that she does actually bring to the film, other than just these comedic satirical moments, is that she pushes Enid. She pushes her to explore controversial subject matter. One of the things that you can clearly get is that Klaus probably has had this thrown at him that your art, your comic book isn't important. It's just doodles. You get that straight away. But it does push Enid into into exploring that. And that's why she gets a whole idea with the Coons Chicken poster to use it because the, t- the teacher has actively encouraged her to do it. Or she inspires her as well. So I kind of read it more that everyone in that sequence was coming off as, as a fucking fraud. So... <laughs> There's the the girl who brings in the you know the the sculpture made of coat hangers and the tampon and the teacup and you know she's the teacher's pet basically because she's uh, she's telling everyone that she feels super strongly about stuff and so Edith sees that and she and she basically because she's very smart she reads she that that's the best way to to defraud this teacher into liking her stuff ah uh, but not not with the not with the artwork she's ta- she's borrowed from Seymour. Not with the controversy. Oh, no, I, I think so because when she asked her to explain it, that's that's why I thought she was at her most earnest. And oh, oh, I thought she was just talking shit. I thought she was saying exactly what she imagined headscarf girl oh. two seats next to her because she shoots her. I I didn't she... read it that way at all. I saw this as her speaking quite earnestly and honestly for the first time in the film, and because later on when she does apply to art school and goes for it, I, I thought that was a, you know, the catalyst for that. So I'd, it's a good, it's an interesting um, perspective. I'll have to watch that again because I didn't read it that way at the time. I may have just took it on face value. Okay. No, neither, neither did I, Patrick. But also she'd been given a voice. I, I saw that she'd been given a voice that wasn't to express herself. And I thought that's what she was doing rather than, 
the way that she'd express herself with Rebecca, which is quite different and anarchic. And this was something that she truly believes in because of the relationship with Seymour. I think um, my cynicism was born of um, the way, because <laughs> this is like an extremely white film, mm-hmm. of course, um, just based on who's in it and who made it and when it was made. Um, that the treatment of uh, of race when it does come up in the film, which is not a lot outside of this, outside of this subplot. Um, I mean, also uh, Seymour's kind of fascination with um, Black American culture yeah. from the the first part of the 20th century was that he's fetishizing it and that he has kind of commodified it and he turned it into this collection that he loves. But I mean, you, you have to wonder how authentic that connection can be because, you know, he's a... A, a you know a middle-aged white dude collecting records with a corporate job and also because Rebe- uh, Enid rather had, had dropped a a very casual line about um Melora the actress earlier where she um after she pronounces that the cafe is funky yes and her response is just uh what is she black now I, I got the impression from that that maybe Enid wasn't the most um, but I thought that's why she'd learnt from Seymour giving her that backstory about King's Chicken because I thought that was an eye-opening to her and she'd been, you know, uh, her eyes have been opened a bit uh, contextually, historically, and maybe... I, think yeah. so. I guess it's just like the, the wording that she yeah. uses in the, the class is she basically verbatim mm-hmm. takes the words of the tampon and the teacup girl it's a found object. It's yeah. dealing with the issues of, it's like, I thought she was just trying to defraud her out of a better grade. And then when she applies to art school, it's because she's, everything else is going to she's shit. Desperate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's running, her options are starting to run, run dry, aren't they? I, but that's, that's, that's a pessimistic reading. But I, um, I see what you, I see what you're saying completely. And Enid and Rebecca decide to sort of go back to Seymour's place. They check out his mail which I think he's got psoriasis or the association for psoriasis, which is their like, yeah, which is their big cue to uh, that'll be him. And then he's got a yard sale or is it a garage sale? I never know. I never know which one's which, but um, I mean, it's on the yard, but in the garage. Yeah. So yeah. Ah. Guard sale. Guard sale. And, uh, <laughs> and then they, that's when they, they meet Seymour's flatmate. Who's just, Wonderful in the film. He's, again, another one of those side characters that really does uh, bring a lot to the party. And uh, and then they meet Seymour, and he is dorky, nervous, but quiet, quietly confident, certainly, when he's talking about his 78s. And you can see, you can see why yeah, he yeah, responds I, to him. Like, you know, like, a real self-possession. And... and Rebecca just wants to get out of there. And, and Enid's curious, isn't she? And then when she gets a record from him, he... He sort of is honest with her and says, no, 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 that one's no good. Uh, this one's got some really choice hits. He does show his dorky side. He's like, well, that one there is worth about $500 on its own. <laughs> uh, they they walk away and they go back to the diner and they discuss their encounter. And uh, and that's when you're right. The girl from the graduation mm. comes in, funky. And again, Rebecca's talking about the apartment, isn't she? They give each other little looks. Rebecca gets a look when when Enid says uh, when she's trying to explain to Rebecca why she like seemed to respond to Seymour mm-hmm. positively, and she says, "I can't explain it." 
and Rebecca just shoots her a little look. She does. And then Enid shoots Rebecca a look when Rebecca seems to actually engage with the girl in conversation. Yeah. She seems genuine, doesn't she? When she's like, ah, oh, we're looking for an apartment. Yeah, somewhere downtown. And then she gets just a little, just a little narrowing of the eyes. Yeah, well, I guess this is probably a good opportunity to discuss the lead's performance because we've we've sort of avoided it up to this point. Thora Birch. Whatever happened to her? Yeah, I, 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 Patrick, I had the same thing. I, did, I was wondering because I, I was so yeah. impressed with her. In this. I stopped, but then I started to look at her filmography. And she's still working. You've got to think. Yeah, I know yeah. she's still working, but you've got to think that those early noughties, she was just completely typecast as mm. the... Because she played a lot of angsty, unlikable types. Yeah. I was thinking like the whole yeah. American Beauty yeah. and this. Yeah. And all three, she's great, but her characters are... They're not ones that you would champion normally as such as a interesting star. performances so mm. so much to watch and admire there's like you know there's i'm sure everyone can google it in a bit there's some unfortunate rumors about her dad is also her, her agent and apparently kind of torpedoed her career a bit by being a creepy weirdo on set shit mm. well that doesn't help but what was uh, uh i found out which was absolutely ridiculous was the age of the two of them yeah Johansson was 15. And Thora Birch, I believe, was like 17. And, and a really unusual move to, to cast younger than the part, but I think one that really works because they, maybe this kind of material and these kind of performances and this, like you keep saying, like um, this sort of innate distance and kind of unlikability would, would read a lot worse if they were also like mm. 24. Oh, yeah, yeah. Five, like the average kind of age that they cast people in these in these films, mm-hmm. they're usually much older. It allows you to be able to understand that these these characters are still kind of they're still forming their personalities, and that you kind of you have to let them slide a bit with some of the more egregious stuff they come out. You with. wouldn't know with Johansson, yeah. would you? She's fifteen. She's beyond no, her years no. here. She she grows into the part. If that makes sense, I don't want to be like full of cliches, but by the end of the film, I think she's doing a better work. Whereas earlier in the film, she, there's a lot of gestures and mouth movements, and it's it's almost overplayed. Okay, it's, this is how I felt. I thought it was like a it was a mixed performance, but you could tell that she that's something there, and she's she's a definite presence. And I think she perfects this type of character because she's kind of she's unlikable in this, and she's unlikable or she's got self obsessed and selfish traits in Lost in Translation. I think you get more on board with her, and I think she's at a strength when she. Doesn't she take uh, Enid to go and look at an apartment, but Enid's just down on yeah. it, and she goes, why are you just pissing on the parade? Mm. I don't, not word for word there. But she she has a go at her, and I think that's a really strong scene for Johansson because everything you just said there, she displays there, it, it's, um, it's a very believable scene finally, and yeah. very domestic she scene. Finally snaps her, because like, all the way she's been so reserved yeah, yeah. and she's like, like we keep saying they, they shrug stuff off and it's like neither of them want to confront the fact that they're sort of fighting mm-hmm. even though neither of them ever wants to be the one to fire the first shot it's also the first time Enid doesn't ever come back yeah and it's an it's another great costume choice because it's the first time Rebecca's been seen in pants which is the big indicator that you're an adult when you're wearing pants do you know is um the extra in the in the scene where they have the big argument, it's, which is kind of a recurrent theme throughout the whole film, right? Of uh, of these little avatars, these little kind of sins of uh, of I guess everyone's 
sort of disdain for modern or at the time modern American culture. It was just a kind of overweight, slack-jawed, dressed like shit, usually wearing or carrying fast food, drinking an enormous big gulp. Um, well, hopefully this doesn't sound like I'm being oversensitive, but that's the target. But it does seem to be that basically if you were a, a large extra, you were going to get cast in, in this film to play the butt of the jokes. So there's a few examples throughout. Like early on when we're transitioning, uh, when the camera's panning across the apartments, you know, they're all quite big. Maybe the Asian lady smoking isn't so big, but the parents and the guy sat on his own. Then we have at the cinema, the large woman who orders the big big bowl of popcorn. Seymour has a go at a couple of, of, of large ladies crossing the road. And then at the art show, it's a large woman yes. quite who is the one who's complaining about the poster. So it surmounted to me that I was like, oh, but is that, is that a commentary on um, American lifestyle and American? I think, well, I think, I think it is. Yeah. But it just felt, a bit, I don't know. It felt a bit cruel yeah. at times. I, was, I think it's supposed to though. I, I did read it that it was supposed to, because I think there's, it, it's a mirrored perception of people. I'm intrigued to to, to sort of burrow down as to whether we think it's something that um, is uh, an externalizing of the character's viewpoint and how the characters see the the world, or if it's the world being built for us by the filmmakers and that this is how they see it. Because there are times when these people are kind of seen on screen and used as a bit of a a punchline without it really impacting on the plot. I'm thinking of the the guy in the Masterpiece video watching that fucking brilliant... Brilliant sounding trailer. A flower that drank yeah. the moon. But he's, you know, he's <laughs> an enormous, like, Tommy sport, what looks like a moo-moo. And he's he's just drinking the, you know, just like yeah. sucking away on a, on mm-hmm. a Coke. There's, there's a couple of little bits like that. And when we mentioned... There's the a guy in the porn sh- shop as well. Yeah. It's really interesting. Leaning right into the camera with this mm-hmm. sandwich. It's kind of gross. But it, when we mentioned Mike Judge, it just made me think um, of uh, the other kind of big cult Mike Judge film, uh, Idiocracy, which was another film that, um, you know, people kind of loved for its really, really harsh satire on how American life is, but also it's kind of dehumanizing like a huge amount of people and believing them to be nothing more than, you know, brainless cattle, which at one point even calls them like creatures. Yeah, I think you've you've nailed why I had a bit of a problem with it, Devon. I I don't think it's the characters that are informing those ancillary but jokes. It's um I think it's the filmmakers mm. because everyone else in the film from the Satanists are Enid and Rebecca's certainly Enid's perception of the world is reflected back at her. Yeah. So she thinks they're Satanists, and then lo and behold, they put up their umbrellas and they are Satanists. It happens a few times where she looks at someone, she makes a judgment on them, and then they become that thing that she said that the, that they would be. What is it that Enid sees in Seymour that draws her to him? Enid tends to say to Rebecca that um, the freaks and the weirdos and the marginalized are her people, mm. their people. But they never really um, interact with them beyond kind of making fun of them, but just in a slightly more affectionate way. Um, but I, 
whether Seymour just represents something because uh, Enid is clearly dissatisfied with how modern life works. Uh, it's kind of it's most obvious when she takes Seymour to the um, to the sports bar, which we will get to very soon. I oh my god! Um, <laughs> but she's looking around the room and she's seeing all these guys. There's like a, a guy in a cowboy hat burping. There's a creepy staring yeah. at a waitress's bum. There's so you can see that Leonard Cohen looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see all the stuff that she <laughs> that she hates and all the stuff that you know she finds creepy and and, and awful. And so she does say that he's just the opposite of that. But also, I guess he's kind of, he's crafted this little world for himself. And as, as much as he's a kind of an obsessive collector of, of crap, he's clearly aware of that fact, but oddly comfortable in his kind of crankiness. So uh, on the one thing, it's just that, you know, he has a confidence that comes with knowing exactly who he is and not really giving a shit anymore as to what that means. And that's the thing that gets tested later when when he starts to become interested in someone else. Mm. Um, whether or not it's just another thing for her to get interested in or whether like she sees him as a gatekeeper to, because she loves the, the stuff in his room. She's obsessed. Like she says that I would kill to have this room. You know, whether again at that age, like you said, gals about um, at that age, there tended to be a, a thing where you just wanted to collect stuff around you to make you more interesting. There is a nice moment later on in the film where I think he says to her, to excuse me, to Seymour, why, why didn't you ask me out or something? And he said, I couldn't imagine you'd have an interest in me except as an amusingly cranky, eccentric curiosity. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lovely line. It's a lovely self-deprecating line that Seymour, like you said, is fully aware of who he is and his place. But, he definitely wants companionship, doesn't he? He definitely wants... He's lacking something. That's why he put the ad in the paper. That's why he broke yeah. down in the car. And Yeah, he's seeking it, isn't he? He's actively seeking and it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you mentioned as well that the Buscemi's performance. There's a moment in the film where that he thinks that Enid's talking about him. She's like, oh, I like this guy, but it's really complicated. And then the moment she says, Josh, you know Josh, he like mm. deflates right in front of her and i think that's the reason why he never asked her out but devlin should we go back to the the bar because it's probably <laughs> my favorite oh, scene in the film um yeah this would have been a scene where uh certainly myself and and our friend john murphy would have absolutely just this this is a thing that we yell at each other very frequently it, basically all the time <laughs> She decides to make it her personal mission to make it so that he's up to his neck in pussy. <laughs> and by doing so, takes him to see an old, uh, an old ragtime. Is it ragtime? Is it blues? Uh, it's ragtime. Uh, well, actually, um, <laughs> ah. it's normal 12-bar structure. But <laughs> well, yeah, authentic blues has the more conventional. <laughs> Enid basically sends uh, uh, an attractive blonde woman over to Seymour. And, and this attractive? is... Well, relatively, for Seymour. <laughs> but she she's a dive bar girl, isn't she? Oh, yeah. She hangs yes, at yes. bars and... Well, I don't know if you noticed, guys, but she's married and she's got a wedding band on her finger. Oh, really? I did not notice that. <laughs> I did not notice that. <laughs> so just to, I'll just give the context. So the girl Seymour is chatting to explains how he's going to love uh, Blue's Hammer. And because uh, he corrects her 
on a specific genre that they're talking about. Have they been there to sign a specific yeah, there's final yeah, the old of an old time performer, and everyone's talking. Yeah, yeah, they're in this. Uh, they're in this like sports bar. There's baseball playing. There's people playing pool. You know, Seymour complains. Well, they could at least you know, at least turn off their goddamn sports game for him. And uh, and when Blues Hammer turn up, they <laughs> look like the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC <laughs> with the bleach blonde hair. There are these four thinking, white uh, blokes. Such a like Matchbox Twenty or something. Oh, man, and they are playing like. Drunk, but fuck it and, out. And the lyrics are outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine that you're going to play this. I am because the cultural appropriation cannot be heard from <laughs> us talking about it. It must be heard in song. Blues Hammer, picking cotton. Oh, God. All right, people, are you ready to boogie? Because we're going to play some authentic way down in the Delta Blues. So get ready to rock your world! Lapping my head off. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> it's, it's great, I think my favorite is the way he fucking rips into the word plowing. <laughs> oh, again, again the, the actor who's uh, the lead singer of a blues habit, he is going 110 at that, isn't he? It's just like his eyes, his purple shirt. Oh, yeah. man. It's authentic way yeah. down in the Delta Blues. <laughs> and it's all these like you said devlin it's all these white people dancing to this when she gets up and she starts dancing and shaking so funny buscemi gets like drink poured on him and and when he comes out and he's in the car and he's like i can't relate to 99.9 percent of humanity there's a part of me that's like when he goes i've been there right and he doesn't Give him a Big Mac and a pair of Nikes and they're happy. This is, you know, this is the, the, the articulation of that generalized kind of hatred of everything. Mm-hmm. But I always thought it was kind of, well, not always, certainly watching it back this time. As much as they have completely appropriated the blues for this god-awful um, white boy amped up blues rock, um, you know what it made me think of on a complete sidebar is um, Jim Belushi, Bill Baxter Belushi, is well into this shit. He has like a blues band and they are fucking terrible. <laughs> and they sound exactly like this. And every time he's in a film, it's like he manages to shoehorn it in. Well, we've we um, just done Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory, and Seagal's another one. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, after <laughs> the train has gone, Devlin, how can you forget it? Seymour is also appropriate in the blues. He happens to be doing it with more reverence, or in his way, more reverence. But it's not like he's actually creating anything. He just obsessively catalogs it for himself as well. That's the thing. Like mm-hmm. He doesn't know when he's allowed in the record room. So he just accrues these things and then just just locks them away. And out with the humour as well. You mentioned it before when Enid's looking at the potential suitors. It's a quite a touching, poignant moment because she 
she does actively try and make herself appear more attractive. You know, she takes her hat off, she she changes her glasses, she starts to play with her hair. There is a moment where when she sees Seymour, and initially she's obviously thinking that it's going well, that you do see the pain in her eyes. And that's where Birch is really strong in this film. It's those quiet moments when Enid's not really saying anything. It's those moments of, yeah, pain that, that I can really empathize with. Yeah, the, the melancholy yeah. she puts on screen is 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 very terrible. It really very lingers tense. on her on that shot, doesn't it? Oh, it does, yeah. yeah. And it, again, it reminded me of the shot in American Beauty when she's staring in the mirror. I didn't actually see their relationship uh, ending up in bed. I didn't see that. No? No. You thought it was just mm. purely platonic? No, I didn't see sex on the cards. No. It's interesting the way we get there, though. Yeah, it? I was going to yeah. say, so when, when the world starts collapsing in on itself, on Enid, and, you know, Maxine turns up, <laughs> so without getting into uh, too personal matters, <laughs> I've, uh, I've had something similar yeah. with uh, a step-parent, so, yep, I would also throttle them. Enid, so go ahead. And Rebecca, that relationship really just deteriorates. You know, they're, they're even now pretending that they're doing something else. You know, Rebecca's saying that she's going to see Alien Autopsy, even though she's sat alone watching a film. Yeah. Seymour has meet someone, doesn't he? Uh, Dana rings him back. Oh, yeah, the original yeah. ad. The original ring? ad woman comes in, and we can, we can cover her pretty quickly. Well, she starts dancing like the girl at the bar. Yeah, they have nothing in common. Yeah. But... <laughs> dancing to solid as a rock. <laughs> once again fucking brilliant soundtrack yeah and and when she's like oh we're gonna go see i've forgotten the director's name but it's like did you not see his first film the flower that drank the moon (laughs) (laughs) i must have missed that one they've got no connection whatsoever but she starts to try and change him she buys him the 501s and and, and, she picks up the pants from the (laughs) she does pick up the Symbolic floor trousers. Indeed, indeed. And and one of the things I do like, and you mentioned it before, Devlin, is that the film doesn't hold our hands because I think Seymour drops one line where he says, oh, uh, Dana was in a in a bad relationship before. Yeah. And you get that sense that the only reason she's with Seymour is because he's a sure thing. Yeah. Seymour will not yeah. cheat on Dana because when she has that embrace with her colleague, that's the kind of guy that she was with. Like a, yeah, go get her. A corporate go-getter. Because she's she's a good-looking woman. I mean, no offense yeah. to Seymour, but punching well above his weight. <laughs> well, and she's she's kind of she's so forward with him as well. Like, uh, um, there's just again just little moments where when she's when she puts the radio on and she suddenly wants to dance to solid mm. as a rock, and the first thing she does is she takes her tiny tiny little um, jacket thing off. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and pulls him up, and he's just and he's sitting there with his ice cream bowl between them. Just kind of terrified, and then that's when Enid goes to see Seymour. That the I guess the next day or a few, oh, several days later finds him in the in the chicken place. Chewing <laughs> on that chicken, chicken. And he's so um, he's he's so uh, uh, shifty, and yeah, we should we should get together. And that's when he says that Dana just came out of a bad relationship, mm-hmm. and it's clear that at that point, I guess. Everything up until now, with like the little friendship between him and Enid, has probably just been like a, a, like a nice welcome thing for him because it's just it's something. Um, and clearly, you know, she's a young, attractive girl, kind of terrifyingly young, really. But mm. it's it's only when he actually has a more appropriate in age relationship that he realizes that maybe it's a bit 
weird mm-hmm. and creepy that he was hanging out with a with an eighteen year old girl. But also from her perspective, um, I suppose when they sleep together, she's the dog that chases the stick and doesn't know what to do with it when she's got it in the end. Yeah, and it's quite yeah, painful it's, it's, it's really, yeah. when they because she's very upset. She's I think she's quite. Um, vulnerable in that state when she goes around yeah. but they end up having quite a tender moment it's quite nice the conversation they have is really well i like the dialogue a lot but do you think it was her intention though when she went there i don't Did, do you I think don't. she went there to sleep with seymour that night it could be i'm not sure yeah but when she walks in she just says um i just need somebody to yeah. be nice to me for yeah. five minutes i think it I, I, I wouldn't have thought it was a calculated thing. I think maybe it was the time when she invited him to the house. Yeah, it might not have been yeah, a calculated thing that night, but yeah, I think you're right, Devlin. I think it may have been on her mind. Yeah, cause he, because he, he, he rebuffs her, doesn't he, to go to the art yeah. show. And that's why he's wearing the jeans. And she just seemed jealous. She just seemed jealous of Dana as well. But I don't think she understands what that jealousy is and means at the time because the relationship is, yeah. it, it is a bit obscure and you know i didn't see the sexual tension which is why it was a bit of a surprise to me but i think it was uh uh Ileana douglas on uh the, the same interview that I, that I watched with her about this film where she said that um the betrayal uh that she feels of of seymour is as much that not that he takes up with a with another woman and with a woman who is clearly you know not interested in him as a person, the way that mm-hmm. she is, or that doesn't understand his foibles and his interests, but um, almost that it's a betrayal of the fact that the two of them were again, another little incestuous unit of two people who are in this little symbiotic friendship that, and that's, I guess why Rebecca gets pushed to one side is that there's only really space in your life for one friendship like that. Yeah. Okay. You know, where you, you form like a little coherent unit and it's a betrayal of, that that they were supposed to be these cranky outsiders together and he sold out he sold out to to the normals and he puts the the blue jeans on which are just like the symbol of... it's great it's so clever though the color contrast the brightness on him mm. it stands out looks all thumb it's very clever i do think the design of him in his environment is um it's really intriguing. It's, it's keen on the eye because you're taking in so much detail. You understand his mm. time and place completely. Yeah, because we, we skipped over the party that he hosts, but the the sheer amount of browns mm. and yeah. greens, it, I mean, it looked like yeah. um, the Griswold's car <laughs> in National Lampoon's. Didn't it? it was just that kind of aesthetic. And uh, they, they really do nail... The, uh, the costume designers and the production designers really do nail that look. Well, I, 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 it feels to me like it's um, the director, Zwagoff, as well, wanting that representation because he's putting himself on camera there, isn't he? So they've all, they've all worked really well together here to create such an atmosphere for Seymour. And you're right, Patrick, about that scene where Enid and Seymour consummate their relationship. Because you do see her insecurities, and it's almost self-deprecating, isn't it? Mm. She, it's so apparent in her eyes. You know, when they're lying together, and he starts to, I guess, up. is he? Yeah, he's starting to snuggle up, and he's talking about that visual. Just kind of because up until now he's been sort of like, like, you know, like they said, the, the lovable, cranky weirdo, and then suddenly he's so mm. clingy. Mm-hmm. The visual of it is really uncomfortable. Oh, I, I never expected anything like this to happen. 
liberates him doesn't it because he then goes and breaks yeah. up with Dana and he says he's never done this and he's always stayed in bad relationships and it was a good thing for him so yeah. there's this really intriguing po positive to it amongst all the negatives because now she goes she deliberately rebuffs him and ignores him and yeah. she's on a downward spiral here she has no idea what she's doing in her life well this is where the her age and her immaturity because despite having graduated or well she's still doing summer classes but despite leaving high school rebecca's sort of assimilated into society as such got a job wants um she buys the flat know, doesn't she yeah she buys the flat she's buying plastic uh, Tupperware, which is a theme that runs throughout. Like uh, earlier in the film, her dad's looking for the blue spatula to go with his blue <laughs> plastic bowl, which is just a nice little aside. But again, all these things I can relate to because, God damn it, I love going out and buying stuff for the flat. <laughs> it's just one of those weird things as you get older. You really do get attached to like buying shit for your house that is not important. I mean, they 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 do it in Fight Club in a far more kind of punky way, but this feels more true because I do buy plastic shit for my home and I don't understand why. I'm so happy that I got an iron. <laughs> <laughs> I told you you were a Oh, my stepladder. Oh man. But no, you're right. It does liberate Seymour and, and, and Enid again, being so immature in her thinking, she's not considering the consequences of her actions. And she decides to, basically ignore them and Seymour really plummets. I mean, everyone kind of does in the end, don't they? You know, well, Seymour's goes scrambling around a, looking for her. pain almost, doesn't he? He wants that yeah. confrontation that he and, can't have with her, so he goes to see Josh. And then we meet Doug again, which is great. But we go, he goes to see Josh after he tracks her down at oh, Rebecca's. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. And, and that scene is, again, it's another brutal scene the way that scarlett johansson delivers the lines mm. it's it's cutting but why did you say that she was hiding from me did she say anything to you about me yeah she thinks you're a dork she said that well what do you expect i mean considering how he met you what do you mean she didn't tell you about that what are you talking about on that pathetic fake blind date. What fake blind date? What are you talking about? But there's also a little bit of fear going on that maybe she's not okay because Rebecca's worried about her as well. There's... Oh, no, yeah, definitely, it's definitely, because well she stood her up. She's angry, but she's also a little bit concerned because Enid's... She's kind of been playing everyone off each other, hasn't yeah. she? You know, she's been promising Rebecca... She's been applying to art school. She's been telling, you know, she goes and sleeps with Seymour. 
and all the actions of a teenager in a way because you're not considering the wider consequences of your actions. Yeah, she doesn't really think about people's emotions till it's too late, does she? Well, here's one thing, though, and correct me if I'm wrong. Seymour goes to confront Josh. Redneck guy grabs him. Chokes him out with his nunchucks. Chokes <laughs> him out with the nunchucks because Seymour <laughs> can't pull down a shelf, which is brilliant. Oh, God, when he's <laughs> struggling <laughs> with that shelf. <laughs> and he returns to it as well. Again, it's Buscemi's physicality. It's just so good. But we then cut to Buscemi in hospital. Has he tried to commit suicide or was his injury caused from his back? Uh, I think it's his neck. Because he got numchucked. Neck, neck and yeah, lumbar. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's what I read it as. I, did, I didn't think he'd hurt himself. I think it was uh, Doug had hurt him though. Oh, I wish that we had a shot that was like him writhing in pain or something then because it, it threw me a little bit. I was, I thought he'd like taken pills or something well they, they wouldn't give him pills would they because they give him painkillers they wouldn't give him that if he'd been on pills oh i suppose so yeah maybe i'll go well i guess he's on painkillers because he's, he's hurt himself well maybe i was just feeling his pain then enid confronts seymour and that's when she's sort of speaking tenderly to him like you idiot didn't you not check the whole book this yeah. is how yeah. i actually see you you know at first i thought you were a dork but it, it's the first real tender moment she gives for the audience isn't it that I think, yeah. is it too late? I, I don't know, but it's, it is, this is lovely it's going through that it's book and yeah. seeing her raw emotion on the page. Maybe that's the only way she could ever express herself properly and everything else is a defense mechanism. But I, 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 yeah. I like the way, I just like the way their scenes are directed. I like the way they play off each other and it's a really good atmosphere. It's, it's odd that it never feels, of all the, the, the kind of things that it does bring up, it, maybe it's just me, but it just it never feels like prurient or gross. Mm. No, never. Or, Apart no, from when he's it, snuggling up to her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But he's he's her hero. She says it, doesn't she? Whatever they had, it shouldn't have been like this. The, the look of it and the way they've kind of ended up together is is. But it's, it's nice that they get. Um, it is nice to to finish on a little bit of actual unguarded emotion for the first time after she leaves the the hospital she sees rebecca on the bench and they have a a sort of reconciliation as well an acceptance that their friendship has splintered to the point where they're going down different paths and they can no Mm. longer have that intense relationship again it ends with that call me okay but they both that's just a turn of phrase the turn of phrase that they gave the girl at the beginning of the film, you know, well, that'll, yeah. that'll really happen. Mm. Well, we've, we've avoided talking about it because it's, it's one of the big talking points for this film. So the, throughout the whole film, Enid and Rebecca saw Norm sat at the bus mm. and they pointed out that the, the bus route had been cancelled a couple of years ago and Norm was like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, and then Enid you know, leaves everybody... Seymour is in therapy and living back with his mother, and that is just a tragic existence. Did you think about what you wanted for your dinner, Seymour? No, no, I love the way I love the way the therapist just says, "No, you're doing all the work." Oh god, yeah. it's the way she closes the door. She has that little look. It's just yes, yeah, it's oh. like Ugh, I have to see him again for another week. Um, but but Enid goes back to that bus stop. She sees Norm walk onto the bus. This is a really and leave like lingering shot on her and her emotion there's a lot yeah. she's 
again talking about Birch's performance, I, I really like this shot because it's mm-hmm. God, she's she's it's saying giving, so it's much. It's giving you loads of different looks, isn't yeah. it? Like there's a lot of things going through your mind at that point. It's just the lingering, and, and that leads to the big question. Question, I guess I've got, which is, what do we think is the meaning of the bus at the end when Enid gets on? Is there is it a literal departure or is it metaphorical? I think it can be interpreted both ways. Uh, there could be a uh, you could read. I, I don't believe this. I'll say a disclaimer. I don't believe that it's a metaphor for death. I don't believe it's for that. But I do, mm. it is symbolic of... I suppose something we touched upon there is this has no real location. You know, it's just a place. But does she need to get away from that place? Does she need to get and find an art college and Norm in his determination to wait for this bus for the right opportunity to leave goes... Does she see that as the opportunity she needs to do as well? But the bus comes sooner for her. It, it, mm. there's, there is a lot to think about in it, but there, I tend to go for the latter there, that she needs change and that bus is change for her. I, I, I took it as having a greater symbolic meaning, but I, I totally agree, Patrick, because I've read reviews uh, and people's interpretations that this is some some sort of metaphor for suicide. No, I, I don't think couldn't. That. Couldn't I, don't, disagree I don't think that's in the more, text. Yeah, no, whatsoever. absolutely not. Uh, and maybe that's just me because I'm a half glass full kind of guy, but I like to think that this is Enid moving on from all the relationship that she's destroyed. That would undo yeah. a lot of the film's good work as well. This this film is transparent and I don't yeah. believe that. When she talks about, like, she says that she's always had this, this fantasy to just move away somewhere. Um, and just materialize in a completely new place. Whether this, now I think maybe this comes through a little more heavily in the comic. The end of the comic is is exactly the same as this. Um, um, there's a, a, a last panel before she goes to get on the bus, which is uh, she walks past the coffee shop where Rebecca's now working and just says, um, they don't have a reconciliation in the comic. She just walks past and realizes that it's over and just says, you've grown into a fine young woman, Rebecca. And then she steps onto the bus and you, you watch the bus on a, a couple of panels, you watch it pull away. Um, so I always took it as that she's either going ahead with that, you know, and I guess you can interpret that in a couple of different ways, which is that if you want to just materialize as a completely new person, free of like all the baggage of, of childhood and stuff. Cause the one thing about staying around where you grew up is that, and being around people you grew up with is that they know every embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you to get you up to this point. Whereas you move away to some new place, you can materialize and create a new version of yourself, which is, you know, devoid of all that, but it's also kind of devoid of depth really. Cause all the embarrassing things that bring you to a point in your life is like what has informed your entire personality. So um, creating a, a, an entirely new persona would, would, if anything, just be really isolating, I think. So, um, but we've all done it, Devlin. You yeah. know, we all moved away for university. Um, and, yeah. And then I live, I live in Glasgow now. You guys live in London. None of us are from those places that we now inhabit. So I, we all do it. And, that, and I guess that it's one of the, the universal truths that this film speaks, speaks to. Yeah. 
sometimes you just have to put the one i guess the one thing that you can't do though is uh is escape from yourself um but just one thing on on the ending i, I did read uh an interview with daniel Klaus, and he was talking about how he likes to how he deals with with the endings and stuff he doesn't like endings in the traditional sense in that he um he doesn't believe in solutions for characters he doesn't think that a character should ever be resolved because nobody is ever resolved okay you better um, not read robert mckee's book then so like they they so he says they come to recognize themselves to some degree but there can't be a happy ending because uh why should somebody feeling happy be an arbitrary point at which to end a story? Because sometimes you might feel happy and optimistic, but it might only last 20 minutes. It might not be, you know, the default state in which you live your life. None of these characters, it wouldn't make any sense for any of these characters to end on a uh, a happy ending note, right? Because it'd be a betrayal of everything they did. That speaks to the, the wider theme of the film is that everyone who conforms and transitions from adolescence to adulthood is miserable by the end of this film they, apart they from Doug. well yeah apart from duck but there's an acceptance but they're not happy or not happy in the traditional sense they haven't found the thing yeah that... it's not that life-affirming moment yeah. you know i've seen some people describe this as coming of age well god that's a depressing thought then if you're coming to age <laughs> to that so it's more like a coming to terms right yeah they're coming to terms absolutely you know rebecca seems to have accepted it more than enid but yeah. look at a dad, look at Seymour, when he tries to conform, he ends up living with his mother and in <laughs> therapy. Um, you know, <laughs> there's just all these things that happen. And, and Enid was the uh, the catalyst. Well, that was Ghost World. We'll start with you, Patrick. Would you recommend it? And any final thoughts on Ghost World? My, my final thoughts, uh, it's, been, it's been a good chat because it's given me some other perspective to it. And when I was watching it, I did feel a definite disconnect to the main characters. Um, what kind of kept me interested in, in into the film was I was concerned for Seymour and it was my concern for him that he, he became the character that I latched onto, which I, I think it's quite, I think I do, I've said it before, I, th- I do think it's quite refreshing to watch a film like this that is quite bold in its narrative and it's quite bold in in how it portrays its characters and has them speak and to, to have them that they're not attractive uh in, in personality and they are representative of a certain teenage angst and punk sensibility that nonconformity that's you know, pe- people like to express themselves that way but it I found the dialogue interesting. I, I, I like the way it looked. And despite all of that, I like the tone and the atmosphere of it, but mainly of Seymour's story. Um, and I did like, I do, I'm quite a fan of the non-ending, you know, the non, this is how it ends kind of thing that gives us reason to talk and to, to consider what it means at the end, which which is what we've done here. I would recommend it. Um, from that point of view, from a comic book film that's not a comic book film that is of a time that represents, I don't know, America and the the mumblecore type thing that we spoke about, that kind of angsty film. But I, I do have reservations that the central characters weren't quite, uh, didn't hold me enough in a way despite some excellent performances. 
Scally, your turn. Uh, on rewatching it again as an adult, I identified hugely with Seymour, uh, and it struck me how kind of poignant and painful the film is. Kind of speaks to that universal truth. We all, at some stage in our lives, have like struggled with a search for identity and with conformity. And I would definitely, definitely recommend Ghost World to anybody who has not seen it. And I would also recommend it to anyone who has not seen it in a long time. Because I think it's kind of maybe more topical now in today's climate of cultural appropriation, nostalgia. This film could be wholly depressing, but for the way that Clouds and Zweigoff handle the humour. So every time there's this, these poignant moments, they're undercut by humour, but not to the detriment. It's subtle and it feels layered. So... Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and it was a really good pick, Devlin. But I'm definitely with Patrick. The um, the the protagonists are difficult to get on board with, and I think if you're coming to this film new, you kind of need to know that you're probably going to dislike them for the majority of the running time. I would I would have to just kind of echo what what you guys have just said. Um, I think you kind of I think you summed it up very well. Um, in terms of the the characters being unlikable or uh, or difficult to like. Um, that's, yeah, that's very true. Um, I think it was certainly around this era, especially like late nineties as well. You had, um, uh, guys like Todd Salantz who were breaking through at a, say, uh, a similar time to this. And I think people were really pushing the envelope as far as what you could get away with, uh, a protagonist in a film doing and, and getting away from that notion of, of characters being likable and, and, it's it's rescued by the fact that the characters are just so well drawn and so well inhabited that it just becomes so rounded um, that you, you can't help but just be pulled along with them. And as you said, it's um, it's 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 very funny, and that and that humor masks a very deep streak of of melancholy, which sits through the whole thing. I think if this film was had more of that sort of snarky teen solipsism to it, if it had been purely kind of created with that audience in mind, I think it wouldn't have lasted as long as it has. I think it is that that richness, that the extra layers that are put into it, the perspective of um, the kind of the weary perspective of adulthood. But it doesn't feel like it adopts that viewpoint solidly. It's 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 not one generation judging another and it's not one character judging another. It's, it's a, a kind of just a, a wonderfully rounded portrait of these people and their particular types of sadness and the characters are solipsistic, but the film isn't as, as I've got older and I've accrued more experiences. I bring those experiences to the film and, and the film uh, reflects those back. So there's, yeah, there's plenty to recommend in this one. Well said. Yeah, good. Good choice. Yeah, it was a good choice, Devlin. Which oh my God. leads us on to our next choice. Oh, excited. So, Patrick, <laughs> it's been about 10 years since you've picked a throwback due to uh, scheduling conflicts. So, we're all sat desperately wanting to know. Kind of went off your choice, Devlin, here, and I wanted to pick something that we can maybe give us a nice contrast to the film we've just discussed at the time. And I actually mentioned it during the review. And I'm going to pick what I think is your first broad comedy, should we say? That was quite a dark comedy in Ghost World. 
1999 American Pie. Oh, <laughs> that is going to be a challenge to not just quote the entire film. <laughs> it's also going to be a challenge not not to just be like, yeah, Devlin's <laughs> like Jim. What? Why am I the Jim? <laughs> just because of that time you caught me fucking a mac and cheese. That's a that's a really interesting pick, and I'm kind of glad you didn't pick sport. <laughs> let's no, let's let's have a comedy. Let's um discuss that. Uh, Devlin, you didn't mention where we can watch uh, Ghost World. Uh, you can rent it from all of the usual rental type places, so uh, YouTube, Amazon Prime, that kind of thing. Uh, the DVD is still in print, and uh, there is also a Criterion Collection uh, Blu-ray. I believe I got I got the DVD for one pound thirty from Music Magpie. Yeah, you can you can buy this DVD kind of anywhere. I would say just buy. The- oh, and stay for the end of the credits as well. Oh yes, please do. Oh yeah. <laughs> Post-credit sequence. <laughs> Preempting Marvel by a good 10 years. <laughs> well, we'll say our goodbyes then, shall we, team? And for our outro song, we have something very, very special for you listeners. We wanted to make sure that whatever we played, Enid would approve of it. So we've landed on one of the greatest punk bands of the 1970s. None of this Sex Pistols nonsense or the Ramones. No, 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 no. Not good enough for Enid. It's X-Ray Specs germ-free adolescence. I hope you enjoy it. It's Gally in Glasgow, and I'm off to the store to pick up some cigarettes. Working overtime, 16 hours. And uh, it's Devlin in London. I'm off to go listen to some reggae tonight. <laughs> oh, oh, I haven't got any... Um, um, Patrick from London, thanks guys. I am going to go and poison people at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.